There was a decade of me saying, uh, this is my last drink, or I'm going to take a month off, or, you know, I'm only going to drink on weekends, or, you know, all of those rationalizations or, or moments in which I told myself I was done, or I had it under control, or whatever, you know, the, the denial of that day was. Welcome to the show that drops in on people's moments of clarity surrounding their choice to not drink. I'm Kate Madry, and I'm so happy you're here. Sobriety is like a thumbprint, and just like your skincare routine or your self-care routine, everyone's sober care routine is very different. By the end of each conversation, you'll leave with a little bit more insight to help guide you while building your sober care routine. This is a Clear-Headed Podcast. This conversation is with Ryan Desick, an associate marriage and family therapist, a mental health advocate, and author. He just came out with his newest book, Harder to Breathe. Oh, that sounds like a familiar title. It's because he also happens to be the founding drummer of the world's most popular band, Maroon 5. Yeah, there's a lot to uncover in this episode, and we really do talk about his journey, how long it took him to get there, what linear sobriety looks like and the importance of being kind to yourself before you're on a linear path. All right, I'll kick off the conversation for us in a two and a three. Okay, enjoy. I guess let's start at the top, which is kind of the question that I ask every guest uh, at the beginning, which is if you can go back to kind of time travel with me, back to when you started realizing that alcohol was no longer serving you, what were your moments or moment of clarity surrounding that decision? At the end of my drinking, uh, there were a few moments of uh, in which I was really humbled uh, by the, the sort of unmanageability of my life at that point. And it was really when I realized that alcohol was what was preventing me from feeling connected to life that what was missing and what was actually the problem at that point was a lack of connection, a lack of feeling um, that I was living a life uh, with meaning and purpose and fulfillment Uh, on top of the fact that I just felt like absolute crap, you know, I mean, just physically and uh, I had anxiety 24 seven and just, you know, in, in every way, mind, body and spirit, you know, I just was not doing well. Um, But it was really just that, that that weird sort of moment of clarity that you can have even when you're wasted i suppose where it was very clear that if i keep doing what i'm doing um i'm just going to keep getting worse and worse until i die and so clearly my way of doing things was not working and and the best thing i could do at that moment was to turn around and just take one step in the other direction and and accept whatever was offered to me in terms of um, help and guidance to point me in a, in a different direction than what I had been trying to do. Um, I was really lucky to have some support in the process. And that was really a big thing in terms of people really pointing out the ways in which my life had become unmanageable and pointing me in a direction that would be helpful for me. What What kind of I mean, I, you gave a little bit of a summary just then of like what that support looked like, but was it your family? Was it your friends? Was it the people in your career path that you had chosen? What did that support look like? And you mentioned that they pointed out 
the ways in which what you were doing maybe wasn't working. But did that feel supportive to you at the time? Or is this a hindsight 2020? Ah, that is what I needed. Well, really, it was two people. It was my girlfriend, Sean, and it was my therapist. Um, Because I had been dipping my toes in the sort of uh, idea of recovery and and convincing myself that I was doing the work by going to a therapist. And um, as I'm sure your listeners are aware, you know, addiction is, is an individual uh, issue, but it's, it can be a family uh, disease. Right. And my girlfriend and I had been living together and, you know, my rationalizations about why I didn't have a problem or the ways in which I was uh, going through this pattern and this cycle of alcoholism was wrapped up in our relationship and a lot of complicated issues that come up with that when two people are in a a relationship like that. Um, So it was a big moment for her to come to me and say, you know, I don't want to see you living this way anymore. I like, I don't know what it's going to mean for our relationship. I don't know what recovery is going to look like for you, but clearly you have a problem and you're killing yourself, you know? So that was like, when I say a turning point, you know, in terms of like somebody who was trying to, to support me really in everything that I was doing, realizing that the best way to support me was to say, I'm not going to support this anymore. Right. Yeah. And she actually helped she and my therapist, she, we called my therapist together. I was still in the middle of a binge, you know, <laughs> but uh, yeah. he was the one who, who suggested that I go to the Betty Ford center and, and just check myself in for a month. And, that was how I would start my journey. And I was just at this really humbled place where I was like, here's this person who's sharing my life with me, telling me like, you need help. And it, that was all the kind of nudge that I needed. I had been so humbled by like how unmanageable everything had gotten for her to have that clarity for, and then to point me in that direction and to find that clarity for my therapist uh, was just the starting point. And then, and then later down the road, I mean, the rest of my family and friends, they didn't really know the extent of what the problem was because I was hiding so much of it, you know, but once I let them in, once I admitted, you know, to myself and to the world of what I was dealing with, they were all very supportive and loving. And so that was something I really needed. It's so interesting because I know, you know, a common piece of advice that I was told and that I tell people and that it goes around is like, you, you can't do it for anybody else. You have to do it Mm -hmm. for yourself. And I listened to like your moment of clarity coming from somebody else trying to help you. And I do think that that's kind of rare. I mean, there's a level of trust that you had to have with your partner to say like, I, one, yes, you knew it deep down. If you've been dipping your toes, you obviously were like, okay, this is maybe something I really need to address. But to have your clarity come from somebody else's like courage and I don't know, candor to say this is not something that's going to work for you is kind of unique. It is. I, you know, I will give I'll give the, the caveat that had I not been in the place that I was where I was ready to accept that <laughs> nudge, it would have yeah. been very different, right? Um, it was right. just at a moment where we had both gotten to this place of just recognition of how far it had gone, how much I was suffering, and that my way of doing things was not working that in this moment of just like, I had no more rationalizations. I could not be in denial anymore. It was at the end of my rope in terms of, uh, you know, just spiritually and, and 
physically and mentally just feeling broken. And, and her ability to say that at that moment when I was ready to hear it, recognize it. She probably on some level recognized that I was ready to hear it, right? Yeah. And yeah. and it was ultimately, it had to be ultimately my choice and my path in terms of like the willingness to accept um, help and to really embrace a new lifestyle and make all those changes. Um, but yeah, I do think it's invaluable to have support. Um, and sometimes support can be a double-edged sword, you know, because if you're in your addiction and somebody's trying to support you, but really what they're doing is enabling or supporting your addiction by not holding you, to, you know, responsible for what is going on, then they're, they're not really helping you. Right. Um, and that's such yeah, a tough yeah. thing for families to recognize. It's like, you want the best for your loved one and you see them suffering and you just want to help. Um, and sometimes the best thing you can do for them is to say, I'm not, I'm not going to support this anymore. Gosh, that is just such a good point because, I mean, in my own family and in friendships, and I, I can't think of one person out there, unfortunately, that isn't familiar with addiction at some point of their family um, or friendships. And what you just said, you want to support the person, but you're supporting the addiction. The enmeshment that you get when you are in it, when you are in the throes, when drinking is you and you are drinking and you are the drug, the drink, the high, the hangover, the whatever. When you're so enmeshed in that, it's so hard for family and friends to separate and know what to, I don't know, yeah, like support. And then it's like going even if it's hard for your family and friends to see, it's even harder, I mean, for me even, to see where I separate um, fun, 20-something, this is the party lifestyle, it is totally okay, I have a handle on it, versus the toxicity of dependence and like just totally, you know, shaping my life around it. When you had that moment of clarity and you went to the Betty Ford Clinic, what did it look like for you from that point on? Did you feel like, you know, taking apart those, the addiction and yourself was like really tough Velcro to undo? Or did you feel like it was an easy sever? Well, you know, I think in, in earlier recovery, a lot of people that I was talking to, I actually volunteered at a recovery center after a, a Betty Ford. And I would tell my story about how I, I went to Betty Ford and I kind of, um, I got clean and I didn't look back. And I was just like, had this new life in recovery and I was full throttle into that. Uh, and, and they just seemed to be like, oh my God, that's amazing. Like everyone else's story like has relapses and has all this these problems before you, they actually get it eventually, hopefully if they do get it. And then I had to remind them like, yeah, but there was a decade of me saying, uh, this is my last drink, or I'm going to take a month off, or, you know, I'm only going to drink on weekends or, you know, all of those rationalizations or, or moments in which I told myself I was done or I had it under control or whatever, you know, the, the denial of that day was, so it, it really was 101 or 1,001 relapses, if you look at it that way, 
right before yeah. I got it. And when I checked into Betty Ford, it was the very end. It was when I, I was really finally ready to turn the page and start a new life, a new path, and with a, a totally different relationship to alcohol. And when I say a different relationship, I don't mean like a, we're going to be friends now. I mean, like, I've realized this was a relationship that was in a hundred percent toxic. Maybe it didn't start that way. Maybe it was fun in my twenties and it was just kind of good times and the hangover hangover every now and then, but like mostly just facilitating, you know, a social life. Uh, that wasn't what it was at the end. It was a hundred percent toxic. Yeah. Anything that was good about it was long gone. And it was only this sort of, um, demonic presence in my life that I didn't need in any way in my life anymore. So yes, in some ways it was this, I've separated myself from alcohol completely at that point, but it took a decade to get there. <laughs> yeah. It's like the discovery on the way to recovery. You like start figuring out these like little seeds are planted in your brain of like, okay, maybe I should take it easy. And then you realize it's really hard to take it easy. I maybe don't ta ever take it easy. And the reflection that's required in that I think is all so valid. And I'm, I love that you said that because, you know, you, I'm sure you, you do a lot of interviews and I've done interviews too, where it seems so packaged perfectly and we've found the wording and we've found the tools and able to communicate eloquently the journey and the moments of clarity and the realizations. But it's so important to be honest about the tumbleweed effect that was before the this now linear path that I'm walking and sounds like you've walked and that all parts of getting to that that straight line are necessary valid and just like a, a fingerprint are going to be so different for everyone you know your your decade of tossing and and weighing the options and trial and error uh, aren't going to be the same as mine or as anybody else's who's listening, but it's just as important. I think even like the the quote unquote failures, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I hate that word, but it it's still important because it gets you, if you keep working it, to the place where you are now. Um, so now that you've been on, you know, you say you never look back, what what has been your biggest like tool that you lean into in order to keep that perspective clear and your vision really aligned with the life that you are living and that you want to continue to live? Well, I think there's been a shift in my thinking. Uh, I don't know if it was just good timing uh, that I happened to get sober right before I turned 40. Um, and in terms of just the stages of life kind of shifting into middle adulthood and my thinking of just yeah. not wanting to see moments of just you know, fleeting pleasure anymore as much. I mean, those are great and they come if you're living a, a good life. Uh, but wanting to do something that felt ultimately fulfilling and more than anything, just existentially feeling a sense of purpose in my life, you know, which I, which was really lacking since I left the band Maroon 5 and entered into this time of sort of grieving that loss and self-medicating with alcohol. Um, more and more, I just didn't feel that meaning in my life. And so when I got a little glimpse of it in being of service to others in recovery, you know, just being there for some, even when I was like two weeks into recovery, still at the Betty Ford Center, being able to show someone to their room and give them the itinerary and explain to them what was going on and just give them some support and some encouragement, you're going to be all right. 
that was so meaningful to me because I had something to offer here in my two weeks of no clue what the hell my life had become and what it was going to be. In that moment, I was I was able to give of myself in a, in a helpful way. And that was just really powerful. And that's kind of been the, the through line for everything that's come since. And I don't know if that'll be my entire life. I just know that it's been the driving force of putting one foot in front of the other and the thing that has led to uh, sort of one thing after another that's been meaningful for me, starting with volunteering at a recovery center and just telling my story and giving people some support and encouragement um, to going back to school and getting a master's degree in clinical psychology to become a therapist, which I am now, and uh, you know to actually do it professionally and then to write this book, Harder to Breathe, which is, a, you know, it's a chronicle of everything that I went through, but really it's also um, hopefully a narrative that is something that people can relate to and be inspired by in terms of the hope in, in recovery. As you said, everyone's journey is different. Mine is probably pretty unique compared to some in terms of just the, you know, the, the band and the, all the success that we eventually had and, and that experience and relationship, um, but not unique at all in terms of some of the things that I dealt with in terms of my mental health and in terms of addiction and insecurities and uh, overcoming loss. And so I think that, uh, you know, for me at this point in my life, it's just the next natural step of something that I can do um, to put something out into the world that hopefully has some meaning for someone else as much as it does for me. And the next thing that comes will be whatever comes from what I'm doing now. It'll be the natural next thing that that gives me brings me purpose and hopefully can be helpful to someone else. Isn't that just so like epic to say with your full heart, like this is what I'm doing right now and maybe it won't be what I'm doing in five years. I feel like the tether that I used to have with drinking of like, oh my gosh, this is going to be for my whole life. Or then like the weight of being like, I'm never going to be able to do this ever again Mm -hmm. in my whole life. And now like the flexibility to pick things up and set them down. And when you're holding them, really be careful and, and have a lot of passion about them. That is just so, so freaking Mm -hmm. epic. Do you feel like you embrace change more now? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that was really difficult for me as a young man. uh, Change was scary to me. Um, I, I had a real tough time, I think, um, just adapting to, to when things were in transition or, um, new and evolving in ways that were uncomfortable. Right. Um, but I think, again, I don't know if it's recovery. I don't know if it's being in my forties, but I, I feel that my perspective now is that life is, there's stages to life. There's seasons to life. And, you know, being a musician in my 20s, I never could have foreseen that I would have been a therapist in my 40s, right? I mean, that's, that was not on my, you know, on the itinerary for my life. Yeah. And here I am doing it and finding so much meaning in it uh, that who knows, you know, when I'm in my 60s, I might have a whole other path that has meaning for me in a different way. I can't really uh, foresee what life will hold. Um I can just do what feels authentic to me now and that feels meaningful. And um, I look back and it's like, I don't have regrets. In some ways I have regrets. Of course, there are things that I would do differently if I could do them again. But it's like, that; those were the, that's the skill set I had at that moment in my life. 
those were the priorities right. I had. That's the best I could do in terms of mm-hmm. my self-understanding, my understanding of life and the world. And we're all just trying to figure it out as we go, right? You don't have all the answers. And that's the other big part of it is like, you don't have to have all the answers. You just have to be willing to learn the lessons that life gives you. Yeah, I think that's so good. It's like a hard lesson to learn too. But once you learn it, you really like, there's so much freedom in understanding that like you were doing the best you could. Just give yourself mm-hmm. that grace. Be kinder to your past self. You really were doing the best you you could at the time. I want to talk more about this book because I think writing a book is a big commitment. I mean, it's a big time commitment. It's a big emotional commitment. Like what what was that choice like? Like what did that moment of clarity look like in terms of being like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to write a book. Well, it, it was something that I thought about doing years earlier. Actually, I had always wanted to be a writer. I was, uh, I used to write creatively when I was a kid and uh, dreamt of, of writing a novel someday. And um, that was another dream that was kind of deferred because, you know, I went in a different direction. And um, I actually did get a, a degree in English uh, at UCLA in the midst of the whole band years. Um, but I didn't think I would ever use it for anything. I was just, you know, music was my life at that point. And I continued to write, but then after everything that happened with the band, um, I, I toyed with the idea of writing a memoir of some kind, something about my experience, but I didn't know what the purpose of it would be. You know, it, I was in such a dark place mm-hmm. and I had, I knew I had some entertaining stories and, and then some really heartbreaking stories. And other than just to write that book, I said, I would always said I would write and just kind of say, woe is me for what happened what would be the purpose of it? Just like no real good reasons to write a book. So it it didn't really happen at that time, but then I was in recovery. Um, I wasn't thinking about it for the first few years, but then I found myself in grad school and writing a lot of self-reflection papers, which you have to do when you're becoming a therapist because you have to, you know, work, you have to study yourself before you can be there for someone else. You have to be Right. But they would tell you, you know, whatever your blind spots are, whatever you haven't worked through in your own therapy or is going to show up in your clients. So you better be ready. Right? Mm-hmm. So it was yeah. uh, the moment of clarity was two was twofold. It was one. I, I realized um, this story that I, I wanted to tell uh, had a purpose now because I had a happy ending that was um, <laughs> hopeful, you know, and, and hopefully inspiring of hope. Um but also just that I had this newfound perspective on my past and that I could tell it in a way that had uh, looking back on it with sort of 2020 hindsight, but also with the education I was gaining in psychology that I could actually kind of like look at myself um, and try to use it as a sort of narrative therapy for myself to, to rewrite the history of, of my life and my journey um, but also to be helpful to others. And that was the purpose. So it was like a no brainer at that point. I, it is a big undertaking it, writing it start to finish and everything that goes into it from the time you start writing to it coming out, which it's coming out tomorrow, <laughs> November 15th. Uh, it's a, it's a big journey. It's a big undertaking, but for me, it felt, it just felt very purposeful and it felt, um, something that was just coming out of me. And, and I, I really felt passionate about 
And so it didn't really feel like work. It just felt like the net, next natural um, next natural path for me in my journey at this moment. And uh, I knew it was the right thing to do because it was the first thing since music, since I'd been in the band making music with the other guys, that when I was writing, time had no meaning, you know? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, yeah you, you're like in you're in rhythm, you're in sync with whatever is going on around you. And at the same time, it's like this natural, natural escape almost that I think, uh, I mean, I was searching for at the, at the bottom of the bottle that uh, purpose is such like the perfect word to describe it because my therapist actually this last week just told me about this book called The Art of Gathering. I downloaded the audiobook, but it's it's from an event planner who writes the art of gathering. How do you gather people together and how do you pair people for a wedding or for a funeral or for whatever? How do you look at it? And and the base of it is to identify the purpose of the event. And so it's funny that you say that because I think purpose is so important mm-hmm. in everything that you do. And for me, and I'm curious for you if you feel like this resonates with you too or is truthful for you too, but like, I think for a, a long time of my life, I didn't know my purpose. I didn't have a clear vision of my purpose. And drinking was like quieting the the voice that was like, you should figure out your purpose. You should You should like lean into what is greater, what more you have to offer. And I think, I don't know, I, I feel like, not having that has allowed for me to actually answer those questions in my head. Um, has it done? I mean, I'm assuming it's done that for you too. Yeah. Avoiding. That's a good word for it. Uh, I think that we all go through <laughs> at, at some point in our life. And for me, it happened, I think as early as my teenage years, we all go through an existential crisis of some kind. You know, we feel the existential dread yeah. or angst that comes with living and not knowing what the meaning is or what our purpose is. Um, and I like the existential perspective in that a lot of us spend our whole life waiting for purpose to come to us, right? For to, mm. to realize how you know God ordained us as our purpose on this planet, or for something to come into our life that gives it purpose. When really the whole time there's no inherent purpose; it's just what we create, right? The meaning mm. that we take from life yeah. is what we decide is meaningful for us, and therefore our purpose is what we decide to do with that. Right. And yeah. yeah, and after leaving the band and losing my sense of purpose, losing my identity that was attached to that part of my life, which was sort of all consuming and all con- all encompassing of my self definition, um, I was I felt totally adrift. I felt a, a total void. And the drinking was a way to avoid that feeling or to escape it or to fill it up in some way. Uh, and it didn't work. I mean, it just it was an escape. And the problem, the, mm-hmm. the void that was underneath it was still there. What I realized in recovery and what I, I still embrace now is that when you take that away, yes, you're left with this void and that's uncomfortable. And the angst of that um, is is disconcerting. But there's also freedom in it, right? Because you're you're able to decide what that meaning is for yourself. You're able to create that purpose and just go out and pursue something that's going to give your life uh, that fulfillment. And it's different for everyone. You know, not everyone has the same path. 
<clears throat> you don't have to do what I did. Just do what feels good to you. It feels like your life actually has some meaning and that fills the void much more than the alcohol could ever. Yeah. And I mean, even you, even though you're doing great big things that people would say is like huge strides, you started small. I mean, you started by figuring out what fueled you and that was showing somebody to their room two weeks in and and paying attention to the feelings in your body because it, you will know them. You know, it feelings can be uncomfortable, don't get me wrong, but they can also really just fuel the knowledge of yourself and what drives you. And when you're sober and you're not hungover, you're not you don't have anxiety. <laughs> those feelings uh those feelings are super super informative. Um I've loved this conversation. I I've, I just love everything you're doing. And I, I really want to wrap up by asking you kind of the final question of this chat, which is if anybody out there is toying, dipping their toes, going back and forth on, you know, being sober, approaching sobriety, what would be your one um, tool that you could suggest for their sober toolkit? Well, it kind of goes back to something we were talking about earlier, which is it's okay to not have all the answers, right? Um, where you are in your journey is exactly where you need to be, right? Asking questions and wondering what the answer is and having the humility to accept, you know, my understanding of and the ways in which I've tried to find clarity and, and find some uh, control over this whatever I'm struggling with in my life um, hasn't worked so far. And maybe it's because, you know, my ego is in the way or my, you know, all the, the, the sort of denial and rationalization that, that get wrapped up into our relationship with alcohol or another drug. Um, it's okay to be just thoroughly confused and defeated and not have the solution to the question or the problem that's presented itself because we all find ourselves in that place as addicts or just in life in general, you know, that's, that's a common place to end up. And, but finding that humility, finding that acceptance of here's exactly where I am. Maybe I don't have the answers and I, it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to be, to feel weak in this moment that I, I, I feel, I want to be empowered, but I don't feel that way right now. Maybe another path that I haven't discovered yet will have some of the answers that I've been looking for because people can come to you and give you a hundred and one, you know, solutions to the problems of life, but it's not going to make any difference in your life if you reject them or if you're not in a place of acceptance. The acceptance that comes with humility is the first step in letting in the things that are going to be lessons that are, that are helpful to you. Um, so it's just kind of letting go of, of the rationalizations and, and being open to change. Amazing. So good. So true. Thank you so much for your time. I love this conversation. Thank you so much. This is great. For more guidance on building your sober hair routine, head to clearheaded.co or follow us on Instagram at clearheaded.co. <laughs>